0: Hello and welcome to The Book Album, your place for everything related to reading and language. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz. Now, bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello and welcome to the show. Hallo und herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. I am thrilled pun intended, to welcome you to our Horrifying Classics 2022 lineup for this year. Today we will be discussing We Were the Mulvanees by Joyce Carol Oates. We Were the Mulvanees was a long time read for me, a long time wish list read I should say for me. This was a book that was recommended to me by an old English teacher in high school that I'd had. And they recommended that if I read any Joyce Carol Oates, I should read this book. I, of course, have read other Joyce Carol Oates books, including Last Horrifying Classics. We read Her Doll Master and Other Tales of Terror. and. I still feel to this day, even with market experience through short stories and other types of output from her that we've read, that I still don't have a great grasp on her writing. So I thought I would challenge myself and challenge also all of you to read some more Joyce Carol Oates. Of course, this book is the most different of all of the different books that we've announced for Horrifying Classics this year. Our loose genre or loose theme this year is psychological thrillers. Uh, clearly this book, We Were the Mulvaney, is not a psychological thriller um, and I'll get into more about that genre distinction in a moment and I would argue the other book that kind of loosely doesn't fit here is the Stephen King book, of course, but we have to include Stephen King. That's become a hallmark of horrifying classics. Uh, But the other three books certainly have elements of psychological thrillers and all of these books are quite psychological in general as well. Let's get into thriller versus horror. So there's no easy answer to figure out how to distinguish thriller versus horror. There is a trend though, and I'm not going to mention any particular sources here because there's no official source that I could find at least that really went into theoretical distinctions between thriller and horror. It was mostly Reddit posts and the like. Uh, The general trend online is that a thriller works toward a scream and horror is a long-term building up of dread. So there's two levels on which thriller and horror are typically distinguished. The first is that thrillers have this more immediate adrenaline rush, right? They want you to get this immediate fear or this immediate reaction. Horror on the other hand is more of a long-term slower pace perhaps. I don't think those things are mutually exclusive but it's sort of this longer lasting kind of dread. The other thing that distinguishes them or the other level from which they're distinguished is that thrillers have a distinctive climax point Whereas horror doesn't necessarily have a climax point that you can look to and say, yes, this is the climax of this story. Horror is more about the undertones or the underpinnings of dread. For me, I will add my intellectual hat into the ring, and I am going to sum it up by saying that a thriller seeks to increase your pulse while you're reading the book. Horror seeks to increase your pulse even after you've read the book or after you're done reading for the day. So there's this sort of lingering that happens in horror and I think that is an intended effect of horror that maybe is not an intended effect of the thriller. So therefore, I do agree with this kind of climax point, but again, I don't think this climax suggestion is really the point of how to distinguish thriller versus horror, but I do think there is something to the long-lasting versus short-term buildup of thriller versus horror. That is, again, that thrillers seek to increase your pulse while you're reading, to have that kind of high adrenaline um, effect. Sometimes that impacts the pace as well at certain parts, but horror keeps your dread going even after you're done with our reading session. Is this book a psychological thriller? I already answered this question. Overwhelmingly no. Um, overwhelmingly no. It is, however, very psychological. It hit me, this book, in the depths of my core when I read it. It was a deeply depressive, slow-building, psychological book that I think is so fitting for this series, Horrifying Classics, in many different ways, on many different levels. Um, Especially since there is, I still feel, I finished this book weeks ago, and I still feel that dread that I had when I was reading the book, when I look back to it and when I think about it. And my argument is that there is something kind of creepy or gothic or horror-like about this book um, that I think shouldn't be ignored. And that's why I featured it this year. So let's get into a short I'm not going to call this a one-minute summary because that was always kind of a misnomer, uh, but definitely a summary of this book. We Were the Mulvanies is a family that is, I think, purposefully pitted or pinioned as the typical, i.e., stereotypical American family. So they are, you know, new money. Live on a farm, big ish family, um, four kids, you know, and they have, you know, the star quarterback in the family that's the oldest son, cheerleader, third oldest gal, um, the academic kind of nerd one, which is Pinch, the second child, and then there's Judd, kind of the baby of the family. Uh, And in many ways, they're just kind of stellar, outstanding, very sociable, amicable, family, um, enthusiastic about being involved in the community. They're in the country club. They're involved in church. They're involved at the high school. You name it, the Mulvaney's are on it. There is one catch, however, during a prom night, Uh, one of the Mulvaney children, in particular Button Mulvaney as she's called often in the book, gets raped. And the trauma and the almost self-imposed silence about the rape, the shame, the religious implications, the social implications, the the inability of the family to seek justice or get help psychologically, any of them. This all culminates in the complete dissolution of family ties and family social status, and in the end, the family has a very hard and very long coming fall. When I first read the book, I definitely expected a different pace to the book and a different type of fall. I expected that the rape would be discussed in a more, uh, not superficial, but in a light that was where it was clear that the rape was always present, where it was clear that this was the catalyst for everything. And that's true to an extent, but it's not that you know this event is like ever present in the actual wording of the novel it's more subliminally present in the ways that the characters navigate and try to process oftentimes unsuccessfully their trauma and that's the beauty and the brilliance of the book is that it's not this hard and swift fall from notoriety from Uh, this quasi-fame that they the family had. Rather, it's this slow process of each member of the family being eaten alive in different ways by this event and not being able to get any sort of resolution from it. Like I said, each family member is impacted in a different way. Uh, The father, Michael Mulvaney Sr., is the most overtly impacted at first, aside from Marianne herself, obviously. Um, the father ends up taking to drinking, his business starts to fail, he is spending money on lawyers and uh, legal recourse that he, I think, knows will not end up in any sort of uh, special recourse for them. Like, in actuality, he's not going to win the cases that he's presenting. Um, You know, the the family finds out who did this to their little girl, um, who in many ways is kind of the star of the family. And they have to live knowing that their daughter and sister's rapist is their neighbor still, and is someone who uh, ends up you know, basically going on and living their life still, whereas Marianne's life and indeed the family's life completely stops. The mother, Corinne Mulvaney, she is, you know, kind of pictured as this, you know, hair-brained or scatterbrained, brained um, very religious, very kind of warm and welcoming person um, who has a, a fanatic love for antiques and restoring antiques um and she is the one who's stuck in the middle uh, of the family trying to pull everything together and trying to keep people together holding contact with each individual person as much as you know she can in the midst of all the mess she ends up definitely holding the brunt of a lot of the emotional trauma of the other members of her family and you know, in that sense, is not able to process because she's always in motion. And she's definitely, it it seemed to me at least, that she repressed a lot of what she was thinking and feeling, especially with regard to her dissolving relationships with her husband and her children. Michael Mulvaney Jr., Mike, the quarterback, uh, ends up joining the Army and becoming sort of this outstanding citizen he was known in high school at least to the family as this jock who was you know smart enough to get by and everything and very very charming very handsome very popular Um, but certainly a bit of a mess at times and this interesting transition of Mike as a an officer in the military and a successful one at that we get to see glimpses of his adult life as well later in the book is a really i think notable way that he processed trauma right because he was able to take his trauma and kind of go to work um and again that's everyone in this book processes trauma in a different way this is just how he decided to do it and how he ended up um, working through this trauma is to kind of just not, I'm not sure there's really, this is this, this is the character that was not discussed as much as the others in the book, but, you know, perhaps repressed it, perhaps dealt with it through his physical means, you know, when he was training or something, but, you know, like in any case, um, the person that processed trauma by just going to work, the uh second oldest pinch Mulvaney, as he's called. Um he, Patrick Mulvaney, he is the brains. He ends up going to, you know, Ivy League school, you know, coming from the backwaters, the most brilliant kid that ever passed through the high school. All of that. That's exactly his description. During his undergrad, he's taking on a lot of coursework, taking on a lot of um, various projects and everything. Basically going in, there's a lot um, in this book about Darwin and there's certainly a lot to talk about there with the religious underpinnings of the book, um, which we can discuss briefly near the end. But he uh, kind of falls away from the family and falls away from religion. He doesn't talk as much about um, anything but his subject. So I guess in that way, he also goes to work for a time. However, he becomes quickly possessed by the need to get some sort of retribution for his sister and ends up taking action against his sister's rapist. Uh, In a very long planned attempt, he ends up dropping out of school and wandering and getting kind of himself in a very free, sort of almost like new age, like hippie is what I think of. But he ends up going and pursuing basically being a wanderer for a while before he starts settling down more and in California of all places. Um, in that way, he's the character, I think, that goes through the most spiritual trans- transformation in that sense. Michael Mulvaney Sr. gets stuck in his ruts, and he just kind of, he dies in the book. Uh, spoiler alert. <laughs> but, you know, he he can't get out of the grief, and he never resolves the trauma. Whereas I think Patrick, going through this complete kind of, stereo- like, he his stereotypical character model shifts throughout the story and I think that's something that's really important to note is that he has a really like amazing amount of growth and change and he is able to allow that through his trauma and I think of any of the Mulvanies, Patrick is the one that gets the most resolution or the most uh relief from his trauma and is therefore able to grow as well. Of course, Marianne Mulvaney. She is, of course, she doesn't get the help she needs after her rape. And that is something that, you know, it's something like, even as a reader, I deeply regret. And something that disturbed me. You know, about the way that the city handled it, the family, the way that she ended up handling it after she becomes an adult. And, um, you know, it's one of those just gut-wrenching ideas that this young woman would live her life without the help she needs to recover from this kind of event. And we do need to talk about the ending of this book because it's very, very interesting in the way that ends. But uh, she ends up getting banished from her home. Um, Her parents send her to live with an aunt and houseman in a different state. Uh, And she she ends up basically having no familial support at all um, and very little contact with her family. Her father basically disowns her Uh, doesn't have anything to do with her, doesn't speak to her until he's on his deathbed. Um, And she has a long series of different um, poorly managed relationships. She joins a kind of cult for a time in college and the uh, spiritual leader of the cult falls in love with her. Then she ends up going to you know, different places with with she's the assistant of a poet who also gets very attached to her. Um, So she has these like relationships that end in a series of severed detachments, uh, which is, you know, clearly a, a result of her processing her trauma and her kind of inability to stick with people and places, you know, due to the way that her family handled the whole situation with her rape. Um, So she does end up settling down. She ends up going to an animal hospital, sort of an animal hospital and sanctuary. And she does settle down with the owner of the sanctuary and um, has a very happy life with, you know, children and everything after that. But, you know, it's, it's a long journey and it's a journey where you know, there's just that heartache and that pain when you're with her in the story going through it. And finally, the baby of the family and the narrator of this book, Judd. Judd is the one who's left behind. He's the silent one. Um, And I think that's something that's really amazing about this book is that the person in the family with kind of the, la- the least... Almost the least amount of stakes in the story is the person who narrates um, the person who kind of has the least, uh, I almost say, want to say the least power to act within these circumstances because he's so young when this event happens um, and he is the one who, again, is left behind. All of the other siblings move off and do their own thing. They go to college, they get banished, whatever it is. And he's the one who stays behind and watches his parents' marriage dissolve and watches his father become an alcoholic, become a terrible business person, etc., etc. Watches his mother become increasingly isolated, uh, increasingly kind of uh, holding things in and in. Um, And then watches his siblings from a distance also develop these different responses to the trauma so Judd in in many ways is it's he well he's the ideal narrator and he's an unexpected narrator and I think again that therein lies part of the beauty of this book is the narrator is the person who knows the least and the most about (laughs) these events Um, and the narrator Judd is someone who's so good at being in the background, but also, um, explaining everything from a very personal perspective. Speaking of narration, there is an article that I read some of, uh, that details actually part of this interesting phenomena with trauma and the narration, trauma and different ways of representing characters in fiction. It's called Narrating Underrepresented Minds Trauma in Joyce Carol Oates's We Were the Mulvanies uh, by Nathan Shank. Shank. Um, really interesting paper and it talked i think in parallel to what i just reviewed with the characters is that every character processes trauma in a different way but furthermore the way that joyce carol Oates writes and represents the traumas of those characters within uh judd's narration and this almost like i will point out like judd's almost omnipotent kind of or an omnipotent style of narration uh, which is a really cool way to kind of juxtapose that, again, he knew everything and he knew nothing about the story. Um, I think it's just a really cool uh, way of reframing the way that we're looking at um, the kinds of trauma that these characters are experiencing, um, not as like immediate reactions or reactions, but also as the way they're represented in literature and the way they're written. Uh, really fascinating topic there, so I'd recommend a read um, if you have the interest. And the other thing that I think is tantamount in this narration, or tantamount for this narration, is the fact that Judd later on becomes a journalist, and he starts working for newspapers, um, and that's something, you know, that you definitely can see, so it's it's almost this, like, in the narration, Judd is writing from an older perspective he knows a lot more presumably than he did when he was going through it Um, but he's using his expertise as a journalist looking at the facts quote unquote and sort of piecing the story together in a very logical and pseudo objective pseudo omnipotent kind of way and i think that's that's also something that's so brilliant about this duration is that this character themselves is a writer and views this whole tragedy through a writer's perspective, even though it's so personal. (laughs) And finally, let's talk about some suspense in the novel. Malcolm Gladwell has the best definition of suspense that I've come across. He says that suspense is playing with the reader's expectations around time. I learned that from um, a masterclass that I took with him online. I was not like in the room with him, unfortunately. He is my number one person to meet, though uh, if you happen to have contacts with Mr. Gladwell, I would be thrilled to meet him and thank him for all of his work, which has highly influenced me as a young intellectual. That aside, um, definitely, definitely Joyce Carol Oates builds in suspense. Her pacing is immaculate here. Um, Joyce Carol Oates is an author who I have to read very carefully because she's not the kind of writer who I like read and I immediately understand everything she's saying. There's almost like a decoding process for me that takes place. And I'm not sure if it's just because her writing is so unique or because her writing Uh, and my way of language or my way of thinking just kind of are like on different places or different platforms, I'm not sure. Um, But yeah, definitely this amazing like pacing and suspense. It was something that I had to pay attention to, something that I had to read so carefully and something that was so effective in the novel. The pacing is really slow. (laughs) The pacing is super slow in the novel um and i think you know that's intentional there is this like slow build there's a slow dread this it's almost like horror i'll be honest um and i this is a book that i would not read at night for that reason you know it was just especially when pinch the second oldest son is getting his sort of revenge you know it's it's just a creepy book at points and there is that like long-term dread that I mentioned I even feel now when I am thinking about it and talking about it and that's I can't imagine that that's not intentional right this is a like a horrendous act that Joyce Carol Oates is writing about a horrendous tragedy and I think even more tragic or like you know I'm not going to compare the two events obviously but also tragic is the way that the family dealt with the rape after the fact, and we'll talk briefly about the ending and some religious undertones to end the podcast today. The ending was so hopeful and so bright, and I think that was what what a what an astounding choice for such a dark novel, right? I think. When I was reading it, I was expecting, okay, well, you know, the father's going to die and then Corinne, the mother's going to die and that's going to be the end. No, you know, it it ends with this family gathering and everyone shows up for the first time, um, you know, and even Patrick, the Wanderer, (laughs) shows up for this family gathering and Judd is amazed and people are happy and people are together. You know people there's this like deep love and deep connection that has sustained and withheld throughout all of the trying times and throughout all of the trauma and the different ways that people were processing it so there's this beautiful hopeful ending which i think um not only was surprising but it was effective just in the way that it contrasted the rest of the book, I found the ending, pacing-wise, went a lot faster for me when I was reading it because, you know, we have these like dark thoughts, dark thoughts, <laughs> horrible tragedies, and then all of a sudden this bright ending, you know, and it's, it was, it was quite touching and quite moving to have this piece of light at the end of, again, such a tragic story. And also religion, um, being you know there is what I read as a critique of religion in this book, and that's something um, that again it's 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 really tough to organize sometimes when there's these big topics right, mental health, trauma, um, you know different resolutions after trauma, all of this at play in a book, you know, and you have. A major theme like religion um, and there was to me the critique lied in the critique lies in the way that Oates frames the religiosity of Corinne Mulvaney in particular as blindly religious and so Corinne Mulvaney is the most religious by far of the family uh, and she kind of teaches her daughter Marianne, some more religious tendencies as well. So between them, they are the most religious duo. Um, The way that they start to heal from the rape and the way that they start to bond after the rape is through like a lot of prayer, a lot of meditation, but it's framed in a way where that's just blind and not helpful. At least again, this is the way that I read it. Maybe th- there was a different intention, or other people read it differently. Um, but yeah, that's that. That was the major critique of religion. That, and I think Judd, the narrator, also near the end of the book, describes some parts of his difficulty with his mother's religion, of knowing that despite the prayers, despite the belief, despite the regularity in their Christian habits, nothing has been done basically, you know, and, and to get anything done was, it took planning and it didn't take prayer, you know? Um, and we could discuss for a long time the, the uh, kind of misimplications of, of that, of planning versus prayer, which I don't think there's a direct opposition there at all. But in any case, the religious underpinnings of the book um, to me came out a bit flat. Um, I do wish there was more of a holistic view of religion and the way that religion works, you know, and I think the consistency that religion can offer um, and did offer like th- for the characters in this book was somewhat touched upon. but um, again, like the benefits of religious practice and all of that, Um, I don't think it was well balanced in this book. That would maybe be my biggest critique of it. But in any case, this is a book I would highly recommend on the whole. Um, It's a book that leaves one thinking and just reflecting. It's a book that I knew I had to post about on the show because it affected me so deeply. And it took me, again, like a while to finish, and I'm still thinking about it three weeks after I finished. Um, And that to me is the sign of a book that is worthwhile, that has big issues in it and takes a stand and was effective and is effective in what it intends to do, you know? Um, And in that sense, gladly I include it in this psychological thrillers or psychological fiction segment on Horrifying Classics.